What makes somebody a master physician? What can we learn from historical texts about some limitations and possibilities and strengths and weaknesses of Chinese medicine that are no longer visible in the modern clinical context, especially as practiced in the West? How can we acquire and transmit skills to adapt Chinese medicine more flexibly beyond the now standard so-called perfumed, candlelit, privileged context of the worried well, in Daniel Altshuler's words, in order to serve patients in dire need who may not have access to standard health care? Wouldn't you want to try and save a patient suffering from appendicitis with Da Huang Mudan Pitang rather than watching them suffer and possibly die as they wait for biomedical care in an overburdened or non-existent healthcare system? On a deeper and totally different level, is there a role for Chinese medicine as a tool to rehumanize, in Leo Locke's poignant word, the people we touch, by reconnecting them with their physical, social, and environmental bodies, and helping them find peace and ease and comfort rather than merely making their lab results and diagnostic tests conform to a standard value imposed by for-profit pharmaceutical companies? Can Chinese medicine, or any, any medicine for that matter, be a tool of resistance to our modern relentless pressure for maximum productivity and efficiency in the industrialized capitalist society shaped by corporate greed, where doctors are left feeling like assembly line workers and cogs in the machine? I'm your host, Dr. Sabina Vimps, and I'm joined as usual by Leo Locke, resident purveyor of multiple perspectives at the Pebble in the Cosmic Pond podcast, where we share old and new stories about China's healing traditions and about medicine in heaven and on earth and in the sweet spot in between. This ep episode is actually the second part of a conversation Leo and I had with Daniel Altshuler on compassionate practice. It turned out that Daniel was the perfect person to help us find answers to the questions above due to his varied experiences of training under a traditional Chinese medicine doctor in Taiwan, followed by his work teaching and practicing in Seattle, and his passion project of providing free health care to any and all once a year in a monastery in rural Nepal. I hope that you agree with Leo and me that Daniel is a rare treasure and wonderful example of just this very compassionate practice that this whole conversation is ultimately about. Before we get into the conversation, I'd like to remind you to, to sign up for my newsletter at happygoodproductions.com slash connect to stay in touch. Also, please rate, review, and share this podcast wherever you can. Lastly, are you tired of waiting until the next new moon for the next episode to drop? Do you want to join us for the second half? Actually, no, this is the second half. Do you want to join us for the last third of this conversation? And do you want to support my work through a financial contribution? In that case, I invite you to join my Imperial Tutor Mentorship, where you can listen each month to the exclusive follow-up Imperial Tutorial episodes that drop every full moon, in addition to receiving all sorts of nifty other benefits, like weekly translations and live tea time talks. Find out more and sign up at happygoatproductions.com slash imperial tutor. 
And now let's get into the conversation. Thanks for listening. I was still living in Portland and I was pruning one of my fruit trees and I cut myself really deeply with the pruning. So I'm, I'm really klutzy. So I do this all the time. So I was bleeding really heavily and um, I went to visit my, my neighbor, Heiner Fruhove, and my daughter and Heiner's wife, Sharon, and everybody is, is, is saying like, you got to go to the emergency room. You're losing too much blood. And, you know, it's like, it's one of those pruning saw cuts. It's pretty deep. And, and Heiner is like, oh, no, 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 hold off. And he climbs up this ladder and he's like, oh, I've got this really special powder. And he goes into his special stack stash of of powerful medicines and he gets out this this the special powder that he got from his somebody in in China in the mountains who knows where he has all sorts of weird potions flying around and he just puts this powder on this cut and he's like no 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 you'll be fine and of course I was fine so there's there's my story of of Chinese heroic medicine but I think I've always been like that because for most of my adult life, I haven't had health insurance because I've left, I've lived in the United States and I have just not had the money to go to, to go to a doctor. It's always been a luxury. And then my friends have all been really, really, many of my friends are like top-notch Chinese medicine doctors. I've been really lucky in the fact that I'm surrounded by people like Brenda Hood and Heiner Fruhoff and... I just, whenever something really traumatic happens to me, they're right there. And Brenda shows up with her, with her needles and takes care of me. And, and so my experience for mo- most of my adult life has been that Chinese medicine is just my, my go-to for emergencies. And I would rather go to a Chinese medicine doctor than a, a, a Western emergency doctor like one time I fell off a horse and I had this huge hole in my head and all I could tell the people who picked me up in the middle of nowhere, I'm like, don't take me to the emergency room because I'm too sick. And I really think that I was like in and out of consciousness for about a week. And I think if if you had taken me to an emergency room and I had been bombarded with all these drastic Western medicine interventions, my condition would have gotten really, really bad. And what I really needed was to just have somebody work on me, like like not even touching me because I was so messed up and I was in such a fragile state. So my I'm I'm really weird that way, but my experience has been the opposite. <laughs> and I've been really lucky because I've had really high quality doctors, which ties back into what you mentioned earlier, Daniel, that it's really if I'm summarizing this correctly, that it's really there's there's top notch doctors in whatever tradition you're working in. That definitely have to have the the fortune of knowing a good doctor or or encountering you know somebody that's 
above, I think people say now next level, right? They're kind of at the, at the peak of, of the profession. Uh, and that's, um, you know, because not everybody is that good, right? And you, you hear stories in China of uh, outbreaks of, of um, diseases, you know, through history. And then the common answer is, well, why, if Chinese medicine is so good, why didn't they, why couldn't they treat the, you know, the um, dysentery outbreak or, you know, cholera outbreak or something like that? It's like, well, who knows the exact situation at that time? But not every, not every doctor is is able to do that. So you, you do have to be, you do have to be, um, what what's the word, uh, um, judicious lucky. <laughs> and lucky, you know. We're uh, fools here, right? We're the seven yeah, fools. <laughs> <laughs> I I should also say, you know, uh, the question about what makes my training different, and this is not actually cultural, but. I, again, I have to thank my teacher. One of the things that he did was for all of his students, when they enter the door, they, he makes them read everything, all the classics and modern books, like the, the whole set of, um, uh, in, in Taiwan, the Yizong Jingjian is a set that's kind of standard, which includes the Shanghai Nun and, and, um, gynecology and pediatrics and skin. And, you know, it's a whole, uh, kind of like a Qing dynasty textbook set, um, imperial textbooks. Um, so the, so that's, that's a must read the whole thing. Um, the Nanjing, there's like 20, 22 books that you have to memorize to take the exams in Taiwan. So that, and plus if, if you're in this clinic and you're not reading a Chinese book, I I've seen him yell at students, mostly the local Taiwanese students, yell at them day after day and actually yell them out the door and they don't come back if they're not actively reading and studying. If if they just come in and hope to use him as a dictionary, like, you know, hmm. without researching and studying. So what I got from that was when I, when I was able to move, not when I was able to, when I moved to the States and when I practiced in Kathmandu, I wasn't just copying my teacher's methods. I was able to draw from the entire tradition that I was familiar with and be able to piece out what was important, what was necessary at the time and place where I was. And I think uh, that's, to me, what the gift of my teacher was, uh, not just what he told me was good, but what I was able to discover in, in all of the books that I was exposed to. Um, and so when I was, this maybe goes back to the original question is when I came to the States, I found that a lot of people who came with similar diseases that I encountered in Taiwan weren't responding in the same way with the same formulas that I could, you know, sort of like my back pocket formulas, you know, um, and I would give them to patients and I would fail miserably in the clinic. And I, and I was, I was embarrassed, you know, here I am 15 years with a great teacher in Taiwan and, and these patients weren't doing well at all. And so it took me about a year and more, but at least a year to kind of figure out some basic changes in what formulas were working and what weren't. And the same thing, when I go to Nepal, I have, there's a totally different culture, different foods, 
different lifestyle, different climate, different elevation. And I, I need to use different methods over there too. Um, and so that, um, I, I think when you're able to be exposed to the entire depth of Chinese medicine, you can see it better than if you've just kind of skimmed a textbook and passed a class. It, it's, it's a little bit different. Is there a, a memorable or specific example you can share with us around that theme? Like what happened in Nepal or here or in Taiwan? Yeah, one of my most memorable stories in Taiwan, this is one of the first times I went. So maybe 2000, uh, you're around that time. Uh, and I was working in a, in a monastic clinic. A monastery had set up the clinic and it was... It there were allopathic doctors, there was a homeopath uh, who had been flown in from England, um, and there were uh, a, there was a Tibetan doctor, and we're all within, you know, we're all neighbors in, the, in this little compound, you know, our rooms were next to each other. And this one day, a young, a young man, must be in his 20s, came into the clinic door, uh, into the com courtyard, carrying his father on his back. And his father was was frail, looked 80, but was actually 50. Um, and, and, and we directed him to put, him, put, put his father down on one of the tables. And it, it happened to be my, my acupuncture room. I had three acupuncture tables, so we just used my room. And, and he was uh, on the bed, he was shivering. And his son said that he was a caretaker of a temple out in the Mustang region, which is a very remote region. And he got sick and he felt that before he died, he wanted to come and see his son one last time. He was living and working in Nepal, in, in Kathmandu, in the capital. So to get to his son before he died, he had to walk a few days, take a bus for a few days and, you know, it was a, it was a grueling trip all while he's, you know, feverish and, you know, who knows what sickness he had. Um, and by the time he got to his son, he was near collapse. So his, so when I went in there, I saw him, uh, you know, my information was that he had a cold, you know, a sick, he was sick somehow. And he was moaning and groaning and kind of in the fetal position. And so I, in Nepal, I don't bring a lot of herbs because they're just too expensive, too heavy, and not efficient in, in, in for that type of clinic. But I went right next door to my friend who was the Chinese, the Tibetan doctor, and all, all most of what they do are, are herbs. They have herbal pills. And I said, look, I don't know what's in your pills. But, and, and he had a book uh, with pictures of herbs in them. It, had, it was a Chinese Tibetan dictionary of herbs. And I... I moved over to the page of foods. I said, I don't know what's in your, in your, in your pills, but give me something that has this foods in it. And the remarkable thing was he said, yes, I'm doing exactly that. He had the exact same idea. He was getting some pill, some formula that had foods in it. Right. And so what I was able to recognize, and I'd never seen this in, this particular type of case in my in my teacher's clinic in Taiwan, I was still living in Taiwan at the time, but I recognized it as a Shaoin, a Shaoin 
uh, you know, the, a cold that had gone into Shaolin. Mm. And so I knew that expressing the exterior wasn't going to work. He had a headache, you know, he had all the things that would appear to be an exterior symptom, but were definitely interior. And so I, and so I was, I was able to uh, do that. And I didn't, I, and I used lots of moxa. Uh, I had lots and lots of moxa and the, 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 the sun would leave him. Oh, he also had uncontrollable diarrhea as well. And his son would leave him in the clinic and then go to work, come back at five o'clock and pick up his father. And then he did this for like two or three days. And we, all, all of us in the clinic, like, what kind of a son is this? You know, just drop his father off and not care about him and then just go off. But we cared for him every single day for like five days. And then he didn't show up again. And we thought he died, you know, and, and then a week later, we saw him and his son walking down the street and walked into a restaurant together. And so I knew that we had, we had saved him. Um, and it was just between me and, and the Tibetan doctor using moxa and, and herbal pills. And so this, this was the kind of thing that I don't think I would be able to, I would, it would be a rare opportunity for me to see a patient like that in the States without having some sort of, you know, like stay away, please type of thing. Right. Or this is too dangerous. If I, if I engage in treating this patient and he actually passes away, would I be legally responsible? You know? So it was, it was this opportunity. And if I hadn't helped him, the allopathic doctors weren't actually had nothing to do. They, they had come in to see him, but you know, and there was a hospital nearby too, but they were like, we can't do anything. It's all you, you know? And so hmm. we were able to treat this patient and it was, it was beautiful. It worked out really well. And I saw a few cases like that. Yep. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with us. I think this is the type of stories that uh, I think a lot of practitioners and clinicians or people who are interested in Chinese medicine should get exposed to more. Not that they should, they have to practice it themselves, but at least have the exposure to what, well, that was just the norm in the pre-modern times in China. That was what Chinese medicine looked like or could look like, right? So uh, I'm just thinking about so many of these stories. The only reason we don't hear about them more I'm not the only reason, but part of the reason is it is not unfamiliar to me because I could read Chinese. We see a lot of cases like that, in, for example, in Zhang Zihe, Rumen uh, Shiqin, right? Which, which, Daniel, you had to, that's part of the 22 books, I assume. No, not, no, not, not that not one. That no. one? Okay. <laughs> but in those, so we have so many records of these cases, which is just like normal stuff if you read the pre-modern text. But we have, uh, what was the, the cataloging? 41,000 titles? You know, in, in the past how many years? 2,000 years? But how many of that has been translated or talked about to the English-speaking or non-Chinese-speaking public? Very, very few. Not even 1%. Not even 0.1%. So that's kind of my own 
how I feel sad about it or also like a little frustration is that so much of that wisdom, like the, the Daniel's case, it sounds so far-fetched or so isolated, which is really just how it used to be for thousands of years. That was, that was how it used to be. That was how people treated, the physicians treated their patients, right? That was just like a daily thing. But how did that daily sort of uh, common practice of Chinese medicine or what Chinese medicine can do get reduced to so little and so narrow in the modern times, right? So we have a complete, not complete, but very distorted or very limited view of what Chinese medicine is capable of. I think that's very cultural, uh, you know, in the European lineage of medicine. So let's, you know, let's say Greek, Roman, European, and modern medicine. You have a lot of factors that um, prevented traditional medicine from uh, from continuing to develop and becoming a a, a, a medicine with that you know a medicine that would be viable today um things like for example uh religious uh prohibitions or you know we didn't have that in china with um but you do have a strong uh factor in in uh europe right you have uh different cultural norms you know um you had um different medicines that worked in different ways and so, you know, in, in the history of European medicine, they became stronger and stronger in looking inside the body, the pieces of the body to try to figure out what was going on. Whereas in China, they didn't seem to care as much. They didn't need it as much. And I, I would like to say that the Chinese medicine worked well for with the systems, even the imperfect diagnostic systems that it has, you know, the illogical systems, let me say, that it has or the a-logical systems that it has, as opposed to in Europe, where they really were were at a loss for, you know, a, a lot of things. And so the you know Chinese medicine, in its in its own system, it, it doesn't sound very good if you try to talk to a doctor about yin and yang or five elements or you know all of this kind of stuff. It sounds very barbaric, or or bloodletting, right? Um, you know, I once had a, uh, a a doctor. I think he was from the he was a researcher at the NIH, and he was visiting his son in Taiwan. And his son introduced him to me. He says he he's been having some rectal bleeding for many years, and all the doctors can't figure out what's going on. I mean, he, he's an NIH researcher, and so all the doc. I'm sure he had good access to healthcare. And I, you know, I was kind of young. I was, you know, I was like, I can handle this. We can just take a little bit of blood out of here and there, and we'll see what happens. And you're like, take some blood out. That was the last word I ever said to him. He walked away and never, you know, it was to him, that was like just barbaric, right? And and I was like, oh, right. I haven't talked to American clients ever. <laughs> you know, so it was like the wrong thing to say. But the um, there there is just a certain uh, block in you're in in the modern mind about what what tradition or traditional medicine has to offer 
it's it's totally superseded by the the advertisements and the propaganda and the and the pride of modern medicine. Yeah. And I have an interesting story or observation to share as well around so so I think it all sometimes the clinical gaze or experience also is limited or restricted by the kind of clientele or the kind of patients demographics one is treating. For example, you know traditionally there's a lot a use of da huang mu dan pi tang for appendicitis. Right? So so it would seem strange to those of us who practice in sort of like a normal North American setting to even have to employ that because appendicitis means you go to the hospital. But there are people who live on the margins of even this society that does not get that kind of treatment because, for example, I've many years ago I've seen one uh, homeless person who came to one of the student clinics and then she was diagnosed with appendicitis. But for her to get the treatment, it is going to take another three weeks because mm. of the queue. You have to wait. You're on public health care. You got to wait three weeks, three to four weeks. Appendicitis? You have to wait three to four weeks? You could have died. That would be the times where Da Huang Mu Dan Pitang comes in. Right, because I've I heard of practitioners who had to prescribe that because they're in the middle of nowhere in Maryland or whatnot, in middle of you know middle America where they didn't have healthcare or the healthcare just couldn't be provided to them on time. It's like well, either the patient die or give them da huang mu dan pi tang. Right, even in America, not everybody has access to these type of immediate life savings healthcare because they could. They may not have health insurance, or they may live out in rural areas, or they may not want to participate in the healthcare system. There are many people who live outside these the margin of norm that we don't hear about. You know, so that's a. It's great to have the tools and to know how to use them when and if you need them. I think the advantage that we have, I think in. Um, uh, you know, let, let's let's not talk about necessarily the the people that are in super remote areas, but let's just say even in a big place like Seattle, you know, where or or most places in the world where there's some sort of clinic, right, a modern medical clinic that can provide some services. What what I appreciate is the ability for me to help a patient with what I do. And at the same time, be able to refer them, whether it's the emergency room or some other, you know, doctor, what, you know, there's all kinds of urgencies, right, that we're talking about. And be able to have the, an integrate, like have somebody on the other end who is familiar with what I'm doing and say, okay, great, that's good. Now I'll take over. We can, we can work together. That's that's the ideal situation where we can all use our strengths, and but also know, you know what, when when, you know when to uh, hold off, you know when to, you know we we all have to be responsible in our own ways as well. 
Um, but it's it's so good to be able to know what what that potential is. Yeah, I, I'll, I've. I'll, Oh, go ahead, please. Uh, I was going to say, uh, there was another story in Nepal. This kind of takes us away from the, the dangerous rim of, of politics and things like that. But there was another, there was another story in Nepal that I, I'll never forget. And it was, it was a simple story. Um, it was the first time I went to Nepal, I went to several different monasteries, three days in each place. So no matter what, there was, I wasn't going to do like long lasting healthcare for any one person. It was, it was, you know, it was my first time there and it's kind of a tour around different places. But there was one woman who came and she, she had an obvious, you know, huge swollen thyroid. And, and I said, well, what's wrong? And, and, you know, I saw her thyroid and I, and before she said anything, I said, look, I have a feeling you probably have some cancer there just from the way it looked. And it's like, I couldn't tell. And she hadn't been to a doctor with any reliable tests. And I said, I, I'm only here for three days, no matter what, I'm sure I'm not going to be able to save you or to help you with your problem. And she said, I'm not here for the, this, I probably, I'm, I'm probably going to die from it. And that's, that is what it is. What my problem is, is my shoulder. It hurts. And I can't sweep the floor because my shoulder, I have frozen shoulder. And it's like, she just wanted relief from her, her shoulder pain. And she was totally at peace with her situation, as far as I could tell from just that small encounter. And it was really moving that, you know, the cultural expectations, which I think you both were talking about a minute ago, the cultural expectations of, of, of what uh, different, different people in different areas of the world are looking for is also very telling and very informative of how we respond to that. That I just had a long conversation this morning with my daughter who is really sick and she's somewhere in a ranch working on a horse ranch in the middle of nowhere in Wyoming. And she wanted to go to the emergency room because her boss needs her. They're doing horse packing trip, trips and her boss needs her to um, keep working. And I'm just like, Momo, yeah, if you need to go, you know, and they're going to pump you full of antibiotics. But at the same time, your body is sick and you probably just need to spend a few days in bed. And, you know, what can you get in the local grocery store? You can get green onions. You can get garlic. You can probably get some kind of a bone broth or something and and you just need to sleep and it and it was so interesting this is my daughter who was raised mostly by me and my environment and yet she has so she's embodying this cultural norm that we think we need to be able to go to a doctor take the drugs and show up for work the next day and I'm just like, no, Momo, your body is just sick. It's just, it just, you just need to feel miserable for a few days. And yeah, if you were, you know, if Heiner were still next door, you'd go to Heiner Fruhof and he would give you great, great herbs. And instead of being sick for three days, you'd be sick for one day. But, but it's so interesting how in the U.S., I think we live in this really dysfunctional society where it's no longer okay to be sick that 
that, you know, it's, it's, and I went through that when I had COVID and I was really, really sick for 10 days last summer. And I was totally stressed out about canceling one of my silly tea time talks. And it's like, what the heck? I had COVID. You know, we're coming out of a pandemic. Give me a break. It's like everybody understands and our audience, like we're all around Chinese medicine people. It's like, we have to model this, this, this different way of being where sometimes like leo we we talked about this um this decolonizing like you brought that into my head that i've been really thinking about this for the last couple of months of of the colonization of our bodies and our relationship with food and medicine and health and i really think we 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 need to model that sometimes it's like okay to to not show up for work or to to be like okay i have a condition and maybe i'm going to death is part of the human condition right i don't know this is taking yeah, and remember, totally different col- colonization is all about squeezing the highest profit out of a a a system or human system that you can control. That's the whole theme about colonization. They don't have any respect or any consideration for the individual's well-being. You're, you're a number, right? So uh, you see, see that, that norm, that, that way of thinking is you are not important. The project is important, right? This business activity is important. We have to get to point A and point B, and we have to get this percentage of profit out of this activity. You are not important. Uh, human beings are not important. These are just clogs in the machines. What Chinese medicine is different is, is a human-centered perspective. My well-being is important. My qi flow is important. My rest and my shen, my, my awareness, the clarity of my mind and the peacefulness of my heart is important. That's a very different culture. That's why okay. I brought up colonization, right? It's yeah. really, it's this lens is really. I really appreciate that, Leo and Daniel. We're throwing you in here with us because we've been kind of noodling these these themes for a, a few conversations. I want to explore how much of that is a contrast, and I would love to get Daniel's take on this. How much of it is a contrast between Chinese medicine? And biomedicine, and how much of it is not a, is is rather a contrast between our modern or postmodern, our contemporary life, and a traditional life. See where I'm going that- with this, Leo? Like you're putting it as Chinese versus biomedicine, and I'm wondering if it's more or if it also could be seen as modern. The re- modern reality, whether you live in China or Taiwan or the U.S., versus traditional society. And maybe the industrial age changed mm. that in Europe a couple of centuries before that was then exported through colonization. But really, it's more of a, I don't know. And maybe we're just idealizing a historical I think practices. there's a little bit of idealization, too. But I don't think it's I. Uh, but I don't think you're totally. I, I don't think you're wrong either. 
I was just I was just look, thinking back to a book I read a couple years ago. I think it was called The King of Cotton, and it talked about how this is not even remotely part of our intended <laughs> discussion, but that was the you know how people who would normally make cotton in their houses and then sell it in you know some distribution um, in in England it became factory there became factory centers where you would actually be employed and then work there and so instead of just doing your craft at home you became that cog in a wheel and and so um, that this book actually talked about the culture of cotton as as the uh, in different countries like from India to Africa to England and the United States all around you know from the from the very beginnings of that and and how that changed our 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 life you know we 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 now like go into work and work on a in a factory rather than doing a craft at home but <laughs> that's that so it's like a that's a big thing about how how um industrialization has changed our life i think that's definitely tied in with colonization as well but I, I think that's um, that's also a tricky subject. I think. Yes, and 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 I think that one of the reasons because a lot of us are not familiar with the history of colonization and what practices these colonizing power employed in the places where they colonized. For example, I give you an example of on spice trade, right? So I think back in the days. It was the Arabs and the Chinese who are controlling the spice trades, right? Having right, I'm familiar with the region's history because that's where I'm from. So, so for hundreds of years they were just trading and trading, but the Arabs would and the Chinese wouldn't tell the Europeans where the spice islands are. Like I think it's nutmeg and cloves or something. They wouldn't tell them where they got their these spices. But they found out. I think the Dutch found out. So what did they do? They went to these islands who are kind of near Sulawesi, you know, in the in the this in that re, re, sort of secluded area between Papua New Guinea and Sulawesi, you know, above you know east, more like uh, northeast of Bali, right? There's all these islands. That's where those spices came from. So they went in. They killed everybody. Because the natives wouldn't listen to the Dutch. They killed them, all of them, and brought in slaves from Java Island and repopulate the islands and have them grow the spices for the Dutch. This That's is very not, convenient. Yeah. Is it, you, so, I mean, I'm not making this up. This is real yeah. history because yeah. the people are not important. They're it's not really even sad. considered people. They're just yeah. like instruments for profit. You wouldn't tell us? You wouldn't listen to us? We'll just get rid of you. It's right? horrible for sure. Right? So so why am I saying this? Not as, you know, not just to be angry about it or, you know, mm. but but to see where that that the seed of that norm is coming from. This norm did not come from a, a vacuum. It came from that sense, those centuries of viewing people not as hu humans, but as instruments and commodities and clocks in a machine that produces profit in terms of gold and silver or, you know, other valuables. 
That's why you, this norm of producing, producing, and producing productivity is the most important criteria, and not how you feel. You, how your body feel, does not figure in my profit margin. Well, Leo, that's exactly also how the medicine works. It's in the modern medicine, you are a machine, yeah, and it's all about mm -hmm. fixing a part. Not, not it's not a not necessary. You know, I think anything we say we can get in trouble for in some in some way. Somebody will write a comment, but it's not based on the body as a process, as as a as a holistic process, right? Um, so it, yes, I think that really does play in very, very t much to the attitude of how modern medicine was developed in many ways. So many facts. I know there's so many places. <laughs> yeah, on a global way and in, and in somebody's clinic, it's it is a very much, very much like that. Which is perhaps why, as Chinese medicine people. I feel like we have there's Chinese medicine has this huge potential to do a lot more than just being a different way of treating chronic illnesses like the way you just explained it all Leo like if you truly practice Chinese medicine in alignment with with its its true spirit you're challenging you're you're not just having a different way of treating illness you're challenging the way we experience food the way we interact with the environment the way we interact with other human beings like it it changes the way you are in the world mm -hmm. is that is that fair yeah to you say prioritize you, you, you rehumanize people yeah. As as people, yeah. as feeling, people who have feelings, people who have sensations, you know, people who 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 want to be less to suffer less and experience more peace and comfort in their own bodies. Right? Because modern medicine has a way and it it, it and it actually a lot of times in in cooperation with advertising. Right, because it 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 it, it reframed the question of what you feel and what you sense is not as important as what the data and the instrument mm -hmm. says. If my instruments and my standards says you are above this or below this, and then you have to go buy a product so we can bring you back into this norm, which is which is standardized by me. Whoever controls that process of standardization controls how controls people's fear level and then you push your product. This reminds me I just saw an 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 article and I didn't have the time to read it, but I just saw something about there's now a new or they're developing a new pill for postpartum depression. And it's like this great innovation. Finally, there'll be a treatment for postpartum depression. I mean, on the one hand, it's great that somebody's finally talking about postpartum care, which is always one of my soapbox subjects that nobody cares about women postpartum. 
Western medicine is all about producing the baby and all the emphasis is always on the baby, whereas nobody really cares about the women. And Chinese medicine has so much to offer for postpartum care, but a lot of it is just rest and recognizing the burden of of childbearing and and giving birth and that complete exhaustion of qi and fluid and blood and and the lack of social support that women receive in our modern culture especially in America where women are pushed to they get kicked out of the hospital and if they if they ended up in the hospital and maybe they they have to go back to work within a few days or a week so there's all sorts of reason why the postpartum period is is experienced by many women in a really negative and really traumatic way and what does western what does our dominant culture have to offer to that instead of taking a critical look at wow we really need to change the, the way we talk or we think about postpartum care for women, here's a pill for postpartum depression. And I was like, oh. Because <laughs> we can if, sell a pill. And if we, you go we, to somebody like you, you, I mean, I can just see either of you sitting there with the woman. First of all, the, the challenge is that women, a lot of times, they might not have the support where somebody is going to go with them and hold the baby to even encourage them to go to somebody like you. Oh, you're just not feeling good here. Take a pill, whatever. Um, or maybe you can even get it at the pharmacy eventually. But if they went, if a woman was really struggling and, and they went to somebody like you, you would sit there and you would take her pulse and you would look her in the eye and you would listen to her and you would create a space where you really cared about her instead of her baby and you reminded her wow, you're the one who is suffering. Let's talk about you. And it's such a different perspective than giving somebody a pill and being like, here's a pill for postpartum depression so that you can, you know, go to work and be there for the baby and the husband and, and keep fitting back into this society. I don't know. I'm going off on on my that's my tangent we all have our tangents but i think what you're saying is a really important point it's it's you know the, the other part about that pill is that they're looking for a certain you know molecule or or chemical that they can turn on or off in a temporary way right as long as the pill is working that molecule react you know be you know that gene will be on or whatever that pill is doing yeah. right Whereas in Chinese yeah. medicine, we're trying to fix the whole body. We're repairing it. We're, we, we are caring not just about the mother's emotional well-being, but looking at the whole physical thing. Like, did you lose blood? Did you have surgery? Did you did your husband run away from you? You know, I mean, what whatever. You know, it's just all of that goes into the decision of a formula. You know, is it a liver issue? Is it a lung issue? Do you you know what what formula do you actually need? Not like here's a formula for postpartum. Let's sell it to the entire world in one, you know. In I mean, Chinese medicine has that problem too. We do need to admit that we we do have that inherent in our medicine also. The the tendency to want to market and and make money, right? But the true medicine is not about that. It's it's really about uh, figuring out what the core problem is, the root problem. 
and restoring that back to its its health, including having the patient participate in that, doing resting, breathing, you know, whatever. So um, I think it's it's a valid point, Sabina, about that. Yeah, and I will add to that food therapy. Food if therapy, somebody, for sure. If somebody is so uh, emaciated, or not emaciated, but com- so compromised in terms of qi and blood and jing xue, right? So a food, what kind of food to eat will be a very important part. Like, you know, for somebody who is really cold and blood deficient, maybe they need to eat more lamb curry, or goat curry or something from their local restaurants. Well, that's another thing of the is the profit distribution. When we prescribe a strategy for people to recover, where does the profit go? Right? So, so mm-hmm. in a sort of a mm-hmm. colonized kind of profit re- driven strategy, most of the profit would want to go to that manufacturer of that pill or whatnot. Whereas in our prescription, it would be a distributed profit pattern to local providers mostly because of, you know, how much food plays in everything. So you see, that that's why I'm saying it is there, it's always there because this whole world is so colonized by this profit-driven paradigm. Every They want to squeeze every little bit of profit from all lines of process and activity, and the best thing is all lines should converge in me. But don't you think that way of thinking has also affected Chinese medicine practitioners? Of course it has, but not to that extent. I mean, don't. that's another thing I always tell Sabina, is don't romanticize Chinese culture and Chinese history as well. Forever, for the in the from the beginning of times, they were profiteers. They want to sell formulas and exotic sure. this yeah. and that, but not to the efficiency and the scale of modern industrialized advertising and manufacturing. Because this line of being in the world sort of eliminate try to eliminate all the competitions and all the different diverse parts that contributes and just centralize all the profit flow into me and me only. And that is the expression of the ultimate greed. Is the, you know, is the polarization and the crystallization of human greed to the highest level. Well, it's also that modern times is unique in that the uh, the successful merchant class, the businessmen, the industrialists, are now also the policymakers, mm-hmm. right? Mm. In, in in the classic uh, mm-hmm. Asian societies, and I think in Europe too, the merchants were actually quite quite low in a social class. They, you know, the nobles might have been beholden to them because of loans and stuff, but. Um, they weren't making policy per se. <laughs> so. Right, so I want to. I want to kind of um, take us. So what you said, Leo, was a very strong statement, and I think you're right. And I want to. Before we end, I want to take us on a positive. So where do we go from here? I think you're right, and I think you're also right, Daniel. So can we think about? 
And I want to hear more about your work in Nepal, because maybe that's a counter story to what Leo was just talking about. I don't want to, yeah. I, and I don't know much about your work in Nepal, and maybe it's not. <laughs> but that was like, oh, Leo, what you just said. I'm like, I don't want to. I don't want to end with this. <laughs> it's, and I know it's been you're a going into discussion. Days, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I love uh, helping, uh, you know, populations that don't have access to medical care wherever they may be. I happen to have a connections. Uh, and I was, you know, way back, I was invited to go to Nepal to do this. And it became, you know, it became my place, my, my area that I feel I can help. Um, and so I eventually started a nonprofit, you know, 301 C, what, what is it? Three, not it's a nonprofit corporation and called open hands medicine. And through that, uh, charitable company, I bring, you know, each year as, you know, at this point, that's the time-wise all we can do. Um, we bring a group of practitioners and students to a monastery outside of Nepal. And the, the monastery is, it's wonderful. The monks um, take apart the mess hall and then put in some temporary beds and bunks uh, and and uh, and we just kind of create a, a a temporary clinic there, and so the monks in the monastery is about two hundred uh, two hundred people, and the surrounding village, the Nepali people, that the the local villagers, and then there's some other nunneries and orphanages, um, and random tourists who happen upon us. Uh, they're all welcome to come, and we we treat them as we see them, um, and it's it's a it's a really fun experience, and I think you know the whole theme of this I think is the how medicine adapts around the world you know especially Chinese medicine how how it can be a, adaptable and how we can see things outside of our own bubbles from what we've learned in school and our you know nice well lit candle lit perfumed clinics right to kind of move out and kind of see what diseases might come or what illnesses or what injuries you know you might meet and you don't have any predictability with that um and so it's 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 a really good experience um to to do to do this type of work and i and i've i usually tell students it's like you know after you graduate find some program like this to kind of take you out of that secure bubble of, you know, treating the worried well, you know, and, and experiencing it. It doesn't have to be Nepal, you know, like, like we were all saying, it could be in, in the United States, there's plenty of people without good health care in, in the middle of Seattle and in the country, um, Mexico, India. I mean, every country has places where you can help and where you can see underserved populations. And I think it's just an incredible, extraordinary experience to do that. And your medicine will change. You know, you'll have a, a very different perspective. And forget about using the words Chinese medicine or Western medicine. Or I mean, just forget about it. We need to help people. We need to do medicine. And we need, you know, we have, we have our tools. And so, you know, we do what we can. 
and that, and I think it's just a really amazing experience to, for, 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 for all of us. Thank was you that positive that. enough? That, yeah. that was, that was and, beautiful. That was, yes. and you know, that's my, that's my experience with, with most people. Maybe I'm starry eyed, <laughs> but most people who I interact with who get into Chinese medicine, the students and the colleagues who I've worked with. But I want to say, Leo, I kind of want to speak up for biomedical practitioners as well. A person who chooses, maybe because I come from a family of doctors and all my relatives are doctors, a person who is attracted to healing work. Yes, there is. Well, I just feel like it's not just Chinese medicine people who are who come from a purity of heart that Daniel, that you just described in a really beautiful way. Um, I think if you went to the first year medical students at a Western biomedical university, and you did a survey, a lot of them would say the same thing. And a lot of them do feel the same, especially people who get who go into fields like public health. I think in every Chinese med in every medical paradigm, there are people who go for where the money is. Maybe they become pharmaceutical oh, consultants. Maybe they absolutely. become surgeons. Maybe they become lab technicians. And then there are people who just want to help. Um, oh, absolutely. And, and maybe and it's the system please, and the institutions that forces absolutely. it out of people. Yes, yes. That's exactly what I meant. The, the colonizing hand is always in the power of a few people who designed the system. The, 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 the biomedical practitioners you're talking about are also clogs in the machines. Yeah. And yeah. it's becoming increasingly so because I've treated me- quite a number of medical doctors in my career. What and they're they suffering. Tell me? Yes, because yeah. they say, well, we have become, this is not my words, it's their words. Yeah. We have become assembly line workers. Because I'm not going to say which hospital system. Hopefully it is only one, but I think it's everywhere now. Every doctor is monitored. Do you know that? Every doctor is monitored in the medical groups and in the system. How many minutes you interacted with the patients is completely tracked. And they, they evaluate your performance based on how productive you are. Doctors have become glorified assembly line workers. You see what I'm trying to say? Is the system, is this norm of thinking about profiteering is completely in the medical field now. They so Daniel, the... do you do you find people in Nepal? Do you ever interact with Western? Because I know there are Western doctors that that do the same thing that you do. Yeah, I you know a couple t- times ago we had um, one of my students uh, uh, brought her husband, who's also who's a allopathic doctor, a very very good one, uh, and he had some 
training in acupuncture, medical acupuncture, or you know, so-called medical acupuncture along the way, you know, acupuncture for MDs. And, um, and he came and, and it was really amazing to have him there. Um, he had emergency room experience, um, and he, and he, he was a hosp he was a hospitalist. So he, you know, he, he would, he just had this depth of knowledge that, um, you know, that you, you don't get unless yeah. you have that exposure. And he was just, it was just so amazing to have him there. And he was so happy to be there as far as I can tell. Um, and we've had nurses join us. Um, we had a nurse who was just sitting in the lobby of the whole, of the guest house and heard we were there and jumped up and just, that was, that was her week of being in Nepal just helped us. And it was, they, yeah. and, and, you know, they all had, a uh, physical therapist did that, just happened to be passing by and saw what we were doing and changed her itinerary to help us. Um, so the, everybody has these tools. And, um, you know, I I happen to, you know, champion Chinese medicine because that's what I do. And that's the focus of what I, of our group. But it's amazing to see a collaborative effort and and let everybody bring the strengths that they have to bear and, and the patient is the one that benefits. It's when it's when there's this contention, or like like prejudice against, you know, that blocks all of us from doing our jobs in the best way. And I and I think you know, no matter what the cultural backgrounds are or how this came to be, you know, it that's like you know, I think for me, like the small person, you know. What I can offer is is just to do my best and and let um, you know just get the information and and get the collaborative help that makes everything so good. What one you know to you know championing Chinese medicine. Another plug for Chinese medicine is that I can go to Nepal and do two weeks of clinic, see several hundreds of patients or patient visits with just a suitcase. A few boxes of needles, a few bags of moxa, and I can help like a thousand patients. I don't need to have huge vans of portable x-rays. And I mean, all that's great, you know, I mean, if you if you need it. But for what I do and in, in what we, we offer, it's so cheap and so portable. Um, and that's that's another just such a beauty of Chinese medicine. And I have a question for Daniel. The type of open-hearted, easy collaboration between the biomedical practitioners and Chinese medical practitioners that you experience in Nepal, do you think that will be possible in the United States in a normal hospital or clinical setting? I think there's more and more. You, know, you see that in uh, oncology centers where they're bringing in um you know this the so-called integrative care units. Uh, it's it's starting to happen, you know. And on personal uh, personal relationships, when when a doctor knows you, you know. For example, I have um, a recent I recently had an alopecia patient. You know, nothing life threatening, but that's a really hard thing to treat. Alopecia, right? It's an autoimmune system uh, kind of problem, and I I. I gave this patient some some herbs, just actually just granules, and 
uh, she had already she had multiple patches of her hair were already fallen out. Uh, she had already had multiple steroid injections from her dermatologist, and nothing was changing. And I gave her this formula, and she came back three weeks later, and said, "My my dermatologist is amazed. She, I she she said she's not going to do any more." steroid shots, like almost all the patches had hair growing in, except a couple. And um, I was like, that's awesome. And then that dermatologist started sending me a few other alopecia patients because she wasn't able to treat them. And she knew her limitations. It was not an ego thing. Hmm. And, and so it's like, well, obviously something over there is working. So why not let this person do that? And, and I was really appreciative of that of that person, you know, because it, it, that opens up the door to allowing, to allowing the cultures to kind of mix, you know, and this, like I was saying, you know, earlier, Taiwan also has this, this kind of a split in China, uh, China and Taiwan, a lot of people may not know the difference in, in how things are between China and Taiwan. I mean, in Chinese medicine terms, in, in Chinese medicine in Taiwan, you know, Chinese doctors learn Chinese medicine, what allopathic medicine, allopathic doctors are allopathic physicians. There are some crossovers now that's like somewhat of a new thing, but you sort of need to declare whether you're going to do Chinese medicine or Western medicine. Whereas in mainland China, the, the Chinese doctors learn a little bit of Western medicine and the Western doctors learn a little Chinese medicine and the Chinese doctors can prescribe antibiotics. You know, there's like a, a crossover scope of practice in mainland China, whereas in Taiwan, Chinese medicine is pure Chinese medicine, Western medicine is pure Western medicine, and so actually, there's, I think in China, Chinese medicine doctors learn a lot of Western medicine. They, it's like from what I understand, it's like half of their education or something. That's it's right. Like, it's very much like naturopaths in the U.S. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's very much like that, and so they, you know, and so it becomes it's so there's a very different thing, but even still. In in Chinese Chinese medicine in China, even though they are working in the hospitals with the Western doctors, from my, from my understanding, mm -hmm. there is a hierarchical class difference in how Chinese medicine and Western doctors see themselves or see each other, and how the public views it. Um, and and in Chinese and in Taiwan, of course, there is that that little bit of abrasion, the little you know kind of a separation, like it is in the states. But if you are able to do a good job, if you're if you're really treating patients, however you do it, it doesn't matter if you do Japanese style acupuncture or Chinese style. I mean, who cares about that stuff, right? If you're doing good medicine and you're and you're helping your patients, the the primary care physicians in their own right should see that and see the value of what you do and and be able to have a conversation, um, at least a professional conversation. And I, I really, um, I think that's happening. There are Western doctors that don't want to be cogs in the wheel that are, that are going out and you know trying to learn Chinese medicine or trying to or other integrative medicine. You can see like the business that some of these people get right. These integrative medicine programs, how much millions of dollars they're making by promoting that integrative care for Western trained doctors. So there's a huge interest in it, mm -hmm. you know, but it's. But it has a long way to go, you know, a long way to go. Yeah. 
Beautiful. Do you do said. anything like that, Leo? Yeah, I do. In so, your local so that's, community? That's, so uh, not like that, but I have collaborated with a lot of medical doctors. Mm-hmm. So, so let let me make things clear here. I'm not accusing any biomedical practitioners. What I'm trying to point out is the system, the entrenched system that I've. I would say I have not met a single MD or medical doctor that has ill will in their hearts, or a profit driven in their hearts. Everybody I've met throughout the years. Have been about helping people, but what what I want to mm. speak for them as well, speaking out for them, the agony they feel in their hearts and not being able to do that because they are hampered and constrained by the medical groups and the hospital systems they are attached to. I'm speaking out mm. of sympathy and their agony. And the conflict they dare not tell the public, but they told me. As my patients, the medical doctors, as my patients, who told me, how they're not able to practice the way we practice. How they're not able to give more than five to ten minutes to their patients who need it more than that because the computer is tracking them. Mm. <laughs> I'm speaking out of sympathy of their plight because they are under that system, the profit-driven system, who views doctors nothing more than assembly line workers because they're treating them as such. You punch in, you punch out. We're tracking each of your every move because everything is computerized now. How much time did you spend doing this and that for this particular person? I'll have to. I want to jump in and just say that I think Chinese medicine is trending in that direction too. I've seen, I've seen uh, the machines that are coming out to read the tongue. Um, you know, <laughs> AI tongue readers and <laughs> pulse takers, and and then you know you have the algorithms of if your tongue is like this, this is you know this is what it is, and this is a formula. It's it's something that is happening. Uh, and, and unavoidable, I think, in Chinese medicine. Uh, and I, 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 sh I shudder a little bit as I think that it's coming to. Um, but I think I think we're in danger. <laughs> I, I actually I am actually a lot more optimistic of that, because knowing the characteristic of this system, there are things they can never do. That, that that's true. That's true, but who are you going to convince when you have uh, a doctor who's you know a flashy doctor graduates from Chinese medical school, invests in all this equipment to mm. to you know to do all this and um, you know what and then the patients love that stuff, you know they think it's really authoritative when you have yeah. a suit and tie on you know when you have a flashy machine with lights on in the background, when you have a computer readout, um, it's, you know, that attracts patients. Well, makes, and the other thing is that Chinese medicine students are now graduating with huge student loan debts that are, that are maybe comparable to what Western medicine students 
faced. So we are getting the students, the new generation, they are being forced into the system just by graduating and having student loan debts and then having to pay back their loans. And they've grown up with technology. They don't know anything different. Mm. They're not afraid of technology. I guess that which is why your which is why your story about your experience in Nepal is really is really beautiful. I, I we can think... leave the solutions for a next podcast, right? <laughs> <laughs> let's have a con. Let's have a continuation and mm-hmm. and see talk about um, yeah solutions. How we can maybe explore that model that you've um, introduced us to, and somehow translate that to other environments or something. Yeah, thank you. It's been really fun. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of our podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation, here are a couple of suggestions for learning more. First, remember to subscribe to my newsletter at happygoatproductions.com connect to stay in touch. I do strive to offer a healthy balance of free and paid information there. Also, if you liked this episode, please rate, review, and share our podcast. And join the conversation on our Pebble in a Cosmic Pond Facebook group, if you feel like it. And then, if you can't wait until the next new moon for the next episode to drop, why don't you join my Imperial Tutor Mentorship to listen to the exclusive Imperial Tutorial follow-up episodes that drop every full moon? In addition, you also receive a cultural and historical introduction to each month and three original translations by me of a classical, a medieval, and a surprise text on Chinese medicine spaced a week apart, often related directly to what we're talking about in the podcast. And you get to join my live Tea Time Talks. Find out more about the cultural roots at your me- of your medicine at happygoatproductions.com slash imperialtutor. And now go out there and spread some positive vibrations between heaven and earth. <laughs>